you don't have to quit your job. You can find a half hour a day. And even if you think you can't find a half hour a day, you can. I'm not one of those people who says you don't need sleep. Like you definitely need to sleep, but you don't need the extra hour online. You don't need the time playing a video game. The time that you're going to get in your car, drive to Starbucks, drive to wherever else, that's 20 minutes that you could sit and write something. And if writing is not your thing, that's 20 minutes you could be taking photographs or that's 20 minutes that you could be working. There are 20 minutes in the day and those 20 minutes add up. It's much easier to say, I can't find the time than I'm scared I won't be any good. That's Brian Koppelman, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. This is my podcast. Welcome. Got Brian Koppelman on the show today. Very excited. Producer, director, screenwriter, former music biz executive. You know this guy, right? He's the mind, the co-writer behind some absolutely iconic films, films like Rounders, like Ocean's 13. But he is perhaps best known as the co-creator, along with his longtime co-writer and best friend, David Levine, of the hit show Billions on Showtime, which I don't know about you, but I absolutely love, along with this podcast, The Moment, where he has these amazing long-form conversations with all manner of successful creative people about the pivotal moments that fueled their fascinating careers. Uh, Brian is a guy I've been following for a long time. He's an incredibly prolific artist, as well as this amazingly generous source of guidance and inspiration to the creative community at large. He's a guy who has inspired my own creative endeavors in so many ways. So how does he do it? How does he manage it all? How does he maintain such a high level of consistently great output? And what can we learn? What can we learn about creativity? What can we glean from Brian's example, his habits, his practices that can inform how we think about ourselves as creative beings and our own unique creative expression? We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. 
If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, so Brian Koppelman, I love this guy, and I'm just so excited that he agreed to do the show when I was in New York City the other month, Uh, and there's a lot that fascinates me about him, Uh, how he discovered Tracy Chapman and helped her get her first record deal when he was still in college, how he walked away from a very successful, secure career in the music business to pursue his dream of being a writer, Uh, his love for and his dedication to his craft. Uh, the persistence that he demonstrated to become successful, uh, and how Tony Robbins and Julia Cameron really changed his life. 
Uh, we talk about the many habits that he credits to his long-term success, like daily meditation, journaling, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron's amazing book. And Brian's is really the story of someone who was always creative, but never really thought of himself as an artist. And then the path that he blazes to make this dream a reality. And then the generosity with which he shares his experience, what works, what doesn't, and why, to help all of us live more fully and creatively expressed. So this is a conversation about nurturing that inner voice, about confronting and overcoming negative self-talk and giving yourself permission to do the work that you want to do. Because in my opinion, at least, the world is a better place when we are living more fully expressed, more creatively expressed lives. Final note, season four of Billions returns to Showtime on March 17th, which I'm super excited about. Season three was absolutely insane. So if you're new to this show, trust me, this is appointment viewing, so get caught up. And with that, I'll let the master storyteller do the rest of the storytelling. So this is me and Brian Koppelman. You know, you're about to get out the door and then you get the call that they, you don't have to. But the truth is, it is fun appearing on a podcast where you know the host has uh, a clear objective, a point of view, and a reason for doing the show. So this is, you know, f uh, fun for me. I'm glad. Well, I appreciate you doing it. You're a busy man. Uh, you're wearing a lot of hats these days. And there's lots of Brian compliments I want to explore. Uh, the screenwriter, oh, man, man. the dad, the meditator, the morning routine guy, the mentor, uh, which is one of my favorite Brian's. Um, and I love you when you're with Bill Simmons too. You guys just have great energy together. So yeah, I love listening to you in that context. And you're able to vacillate between all these different worlds from sports to entertainment to music. Like you really have experience and know your shit in so many arenas. But I think the thing that, that draws me the most to you beyond the amazing you know, work that you put out and share with the world uh, is, is this mentorship role. Like you've really made yourself available to the creative community to be an encouraging presence for those that have a creative spark and are challenged in kind of bringing it to life. So I'm interested in like how you uh, kind of matured into this role. Well, um, I have a great Catholicity of interest. Uh, I always have, but it's always been centered around curiosity and obsession. And so, I mean, the, in the case of Bill Simmons, he and I've known each other 20 years. Yeah. And so that's a very easy and fun sort of exchange. And we, we met in, at this intersection of uh, entertainment and sports in a way, because our first movie rounders was in some ways a sports movie and had a lot of sports references and Simmons used it to talk about basketball. And that's how we came together. Um, and I'm thrilled to know that you're following the work that I'm doing that that closely, man. And I think that there's something kindred in what you do and what I do. Um, but it, it goes back to the fact that when I was younger, the, the answer to your question, which is why am I so available to people and why am I engaged and why do I become animated by helping people break through creative blocks, by helping people figure out how to get to the core of what they wanna do and then to try to help mm. them do it. And of course, um, I am not someone who makes any money doing that. I only yeah. do it completely pro bono uh, on but it's Twitter. Made you, really. It's made you a media presence though. You know, unlike your writing partner, David, who's, who's, you know, he's not a media presence in the way that you are. Sure. I mean, that just breaks down to our personalities in yeah. a way and what we're each 
what in, what were each most in, engaged by. But but it also I think ties into this, which is that David didn't have similar creative block when he was young. He didn't have a problem or not the same kind of problem figuring out that he wanted to be a creative person and. He didn't have the kind of problem I did reconciling the feeling in me that I was trying to get out Mm -hmm. with my own perception of myself as somebody who wasn't an artist, who wasn't one of the anointed people, who wasn't chosen or picked to be an artist. I knew I I was a smart person. I knew that I had a great verbal dexterity. Like I knew I had certain skills, but I didn't feel, and I knew I had a deep well of feeling that I was trying to communicate. I knew when I was... um, really excited about something. I wanted to share it. I wanted to find out everything about it. I wanted to find out what was special about it. And I wanted to go all the way into that world and explore it. And I knew I wanted to find a way to write about it and tell stories about it. Mm -hmm. But I had an incredibly difficult time putting myself in a lane that said, artist, creative person, someone allowed to think of themselves as a storyteller. And so because I was so jammed up. And because I was so miserable, despite having success, um, and some of this comes, as it often does for all of us, comes back to a childhood where I was that kid who was always told, uh, you're so smart, why are you so stupid? And not by my parents who were incredibly supportive, but by the school mm-hmm. uh, that I went to. And, um, and my own inability to see, to sort of solve that juxtaposition for myself. I couldn't reconcile it either. So it wasn't just that the teachers couldn't reconcile it. I couldn't reconcile it, you know? And um, I would look at some of the other kids, even as we're growing up in high school and doing the plays, and they just seemed like they had a kind of magic that I didn't have. Right, right. Right? And because of that, when I finally did figure it all out for myself or begin to figure it out, I felt so much more free, and I'm happy to tell you how that all happened, but I I felt so much more free and so much more like myself that if I can find a way to help somebody get that feeling, I want to do it. So if I can give them practical tips, you know, I started doing this stuff of of trying to guide people by telling them that most people holding themselves out as experts were con people, con Mm -hmm. men usually, sometimes con women, and because it bothered me to see uh, aspirants give their money when they had very limited money to supposed gurus of screenwriting who'd never right, written the screenwriting, the ecosystem of instructors and yeah. teach so-called gurus who are going to tell you the secret that exactly. no one else will tell you. Yeah. I felt so close to a kind of death. I was never a suicidal person and I was never going to uh, die of misery. I was, but you know, I, I, I've said before, and I truly believe that uh, when a creative impulse dies, it's like any other kind of death and it has toxicity associated with it. And Amy and I had just had our first child. I was 30 years old. I was in a job where I was making a good living and I was um, successful at it in by most metrics, but I was not happy. And I finally got to this breaking point because our, our first kid was born and I realized I didn't know how to be a good parent if I wasn't, uh, if I'd become bitter I wouldn't be a good parent. And if I allowed this creative impulse to die, the toxicity would leach out onto the people that I loved. And that more than anything is what made me finally get to the breaking point of saying, I have to change my behavior. I have to find a way to believe I can do this work. I have to start doing the work. 
And by figuring out how to break through and get there made a gigantic difference in my yeah. life. But there was a tremendous amount of self-awareness around that when you made that decision, right? So like planting a flag a little bit earlier when you're this creative kid who feels like he, he you know, can't bring expression to this um, because it's not allowed or this is not the trajectory that you're on or these are not the signals that are being reinforced in your schooling, et cetera. I mean, what was it like at that time like what was the awareness level at that time in terms of- When I was young? Yeah, like you're-, you're Well, it's weird because I was also, a, uh, I loved to play sports. Mm -hmm. And um, I wasn't an athlete like you, I wasn't a world-class athlete, but I played varsity sports, you know? And I wasn't, uh, again, not great at it, but I'm coordinated and I can play sports. And I loved sports. I would do all the plays. I would assist and direct plays. I even directed a play in my junior year of- High school, the one kid got picked to direct a play. I got picked oh, to do it. I didn't know that. So you were doing the thing. I was doing those things, but this was it. It didn't. In doing those things, I would be the third lead in a show. I would direct the thing because I I could you know I knew how to talk to the actors in a way who were going to be really good at uh -huh. doing it. I had assistant directed and like put in the time, but my self conception was that like well I'm not really going to be able. To, to do that. This That's is not, not a valid and, career trajectory. And I think I, I know that I had ADHD in a way that it was uh, back then was really not diagnosed. I'm 52 years old. So mm -hmm. I grew up in the late seventies and eighties. I went to college in 84, graduated in 88. So um, my inability to complete work, I, I always knew I could write a paragraph that would make you laugh or feel scared. I could write a paragraph that would kind of dazzle you, but I couldn't write two paragraphs. Or if I could write two, I couldn't turn in the paper. My last semester of college, I had seven incompletes that I had to solve in order to graduate. <laughs> and it wasn't willful, man. And this is what was the torture of it was, it was um, the books, uh, if something, for a person who really has ADHD, the most painful feeling, I mean, other than something bad happening to someone you love, is boredom. Boredom is not the way it is to most people, to people who have real attention yeah. stuff. And- so a, a, a book or an assignment uh, that was like a book that was poorly written or that was about something that wasn't completely captivating to me, I couldn't read it. The book felt radioactive. I could, in college, I started to understand how to get around it, how to manage it a little bit, meaning I, I started to not feel as bad about myself. But when I was young, I felt terrible about myself and I felt I was lazy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my life was about later. I went to law school at night ostensibly because I wanted to practice civil rights law. But in the end, what I realized, I went to prove to myself that I could do the work. Right, yeah, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> I think that's why I did the same thing. Not at night, but uh, that whole law school trajectory. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, you're this, this successful music industry executive, right? Like I read that you discovered Tracy Chapman, like- I did, that's true. Well, yeah, like nothing's ever simple, right? So. Right. And I hadn't read Viktor Frankl then. I didn't understand the way in which we have to learn to control our own emotions then. So I was prisoner to my emotions in a certain way. And I was, so yes, I had the ability, I was successful at, at doing that. And I had wanted to do it a lot of my life. And I don't, uh, I've told the Tracy Chapman story on plenty of times on my own podcast or other people's, but the shortest version of it is, I was one of the leaders on campus of the anti-apartheid pro-divestment movement. And through that, saw Tracy playing. My mm -hmm. father was in the record business, so I knew about that business. 
And then I set about trying to get Tracy record deal and produced her demos and executive produced her first album along with a guy named Don Rubin. And that, that all happened and it was incredible, but I was spat out of that at the end of college, having done that. Her album was number one in August of the year I graduated college. So graduate in April, the albums are in uh, May, the album's number one in August. I'm working at Electra Records. And suddenly that's what I am without the normal few years after college where you kind of figure out right, what like you is are. This, is this really what I'm supposed to be I was doing? Ta- I was able mm-hmm. to do that job, but, but I was also not the perfect person to do it. I wasn't the best person to do it. My kinship with what the artists did uh, uh, twinned with my even unknown to me desire to be the one doing the art made the whole thing really freighted. And uh, the big moment, so we all have a few of these moments in our lives, Rich, where we, um, something happens that makes us look at where we are, where we plotted on the graph. And one of those was my my whole life, um, the things that I loved so much were music, books, movies, comedy, sports. And I would dive all the way in, you know, as, as you see, if you follow me on Twitter or you see, hear me on other podcasts, I'll talk about all those things uh, a lot. And um, I'll, you know, I'll go v- very deep on those things because of how uh, obsessed I was. But one of the, the sort of hallmarks of the way that would express itself was I always loved to share these obsessions. And when I would hear a great piece of music, all I wanted to do was tell all my friends, right? When you're young, 18, 19, 20, nothing moves you more than a, a song can sort of take you to a, a place different than any other art form. But I was in the record business and I was, it was 1993 and the Counting Crows, August and Everything After came out. And, or sorry, the album didn't come out. What happened was um, a guy in an office near me had gotten a demo tape and called me into his office and said, come listen to this thing. And it was, he played me round here. Mm-hmm. And upon hearing it, instead of being filled with joy at, because I instantly knew how great it was. I knew they would be huge. I knew this was a world-class songwriter, a once in every 10 year kind of talent. Uh, I was filled with rage that someone had heard it before me. I was filled with jealousy, <laughs> competitive instinct, <laughs> hatred. Yes. And, uh-huh. but I, I went home that night and I mean, I had just gotten married and I, I, I knew it. So I, I, I was able to say the strangest thing happened. I heard this thing and I became the exact person I never wanted to be. Yeah. And so that was like one of the sort of markers for me. And that was another three years before, uh, three or four years before I in earnest started uh, riding rounders with David. But that was one of the moments where I realized, okay, Brian, you are not uh, in a unified place right now. You are not comfortable in your own skin. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing because your reaction was 180 degrees from what the best version of you should be. And that I was able somehow to see that even, and I could see it before changing my behavior. Mm-hmm. So I didn't quit my job and I didn't start writing, but I did have a moment of a dawning of a reality. And then, you know, what do we do? We show up for work the next day and get caught up in the petty stuff again, but, yeah. but somehow it lands, right? Yeah, I think that that, that's a beautiful encapsulation of the reality of the quote unquote moment, you know, which is the name of your podcast. You're super interested in these sort of transformative, you know, uh, moments in time in which people change their lives, but they're not necessarily crystallized to, you know, (laughs) these, you know, these episodic things, they percolate up over time with signals and 
the, the, the process is really one of more paying attention to them and taking tiny little actions over time that aggregate and accumulate to what then becomes like the moment that everyone wants to talk about. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I also spent a lot of time afterwards trying to collapse the time of those processes. And that's part of what, like we were talking, joking on the way walking into this room about how our morning routines basically get so complex and take so long. <laughs> they, go with, they go into the afternoon now. Yeah, in order to get ready for the day. But the idea, right, if you're, if you're trying somehow to, to unify your thoughts and actions and you're trying to become comfortable in your skin, I have found, for me anyway, finding ways to check in on a more regular basis in an, in an organized way, mm-hmm. an orderly way, a routine way makes a gigantic difference. So once I started journaling every day, which is the thing that I did started doing at 30 was morning pages as Julia Cameron describes right. in, in the artist's way. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk just a tiny bit more about it. I'm sure I know other people have mentioned it on the podcast, but uh, on Twitter, often people will ask me this question, you know, I'm super active there answering questions for people. And I'll say, do morning pages the way Julia Cameron describes, but what Julia Cameron describes, and you should go get her book, The Artist's Way, if you're somebody who feels like you're at a creative uh, roadblock. But, um, you know, it's three longhand pages first thing in the morning. And I do them every day. I've done them every day since, you know, um, 1996. I've probably missed seven days. Maybe I've missed That's 10 amazing. days. Do you ever go back and, and read them? Do you keep uh, them? You read them. What you're supposed to do is like maybe read them five years later, not mm-hmm. before. She says not before five years. I did it like the first bunch of years I went back and it's incredible. The stuff I started writing in the beginning about what I'd hoped would happen all happened, you know, and it's yeah. not just the regular goal setting, but it was sort of taking myself. What happens when you do morning pages is in the beginning, it's very scary and very difficult. You're just going to keep your pen moving. You're not allowed to think. You're not allowed to be a perfectionist. So for an ADD-ish perfectionist like me, because that was the other side of it, there was ADHD. And then when I would write, I would want it to be genius. If I would, I would have such standards that nobody could hit. And certainly that my intellect was not capable of hitting. So I had to, through the morning pages, get comfortable with just producing pages every day. Right. Then when you get comfortable with that and you're not going to read them, so there's no stakes. Mm-hmm. There's no stakes, right? What happens after a couple months is you can't, you're sitting there bored because you got to move the pen for three pages and you start telling yourself the truth and you start asking yourself the really important questions. That's not the, the target of the thing. And you can't go into it trying to do that because the whole idea is just to dump um, your subconscious onto the page, just to write whatever the fuck comes into your mind. But for me, what always happens is eventually I see the truth on the page and I see who I'm supposed to be and I see the ways I'm letting myself down and I see the ways in which um, I'm allowing emotions to rule me. And, or uh, it, something happens that, that, that forces me to take uh, action, you know? Yeah. And that, but so, but, so what happens is if I would have been doing morning pages when the Counting Crows thing happened, that whole next couple of weeks, it would have come back, right? A couple of days, I would have checked in on that moment. It just would have happened. I know it. I would have started to go deeper into it. And, and perhaps I would have, especially if I had also been meditating then, which I wasn't, I think I would have more quickly been able to go, oh, something's wrong in a bigger way. And I have to address Yeah, because it. you would have been integrated in mind, body, and spirit. You know? Yeah. I think, you know, my experience, I, I started doing... Morning Pages, The Artist's Way in 96, yeah, 19, 
1996. Right so the when same I, year. Right, That's the same year I started. Is it? Yeah. Right when I got out of rehab, a broken soul. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And, and I can't say that I've had the fidelity to it that, that you have. I go in spurts <clears throat> and I find myself always coming back to it when I feel stuck. And usually those first two pages are, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why am I right, writing this? Me too, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then at about page two and a half, even if it's just one thought or sentence, it makes it all worth it. And I went back and read some that I had written in like 2009, and it, I had that same experience. I was like, all these things that I was struggling with that I wasn't sure about, they've all come to pass. And I think it's an exercise in, in adherence to process and being completely in acceptance and not attached to results because it's not a results-driven thing. It's about just giving yourself over to something for the purpose of trying to connect yourself with yourself in a better way. But yes, and I, I think um, both of us are, it's funny, you look back and and uh, I find that I can sound to myself a bit glib about it. And so I, I just wanna say that when I say these, this creative block felt like a death, what I mean to say is I was really sad if I could just say it in simpler language, I was sad. And I was, I had this really deep feeling that I wasn't living up to my potential, mm -hmm. that there was a possibility for me to be a better version of myself. Now we all have that all the time, right? I'm sitting here with you now and I'm 20 pounds over where I'm even happy at my fat weight. And I know I could be better in that way, but okay, I can look at 20 other areas where I can, I feel, um, I know that I'm checking in and I'm doing the right thing. And I know the yeah. way in which I'm gonna deal with weight. I've done it before. But at that time and at various times when I've been really low, when I've been sad, when I've felt it, and it's always, I think the feeling between the gap between where I feel like I ought to be and where I am. And that doesn't mean in a material way either, right? At that time, all I meant for myself was, why am I so scared to write? Why am I so terrified? Uh, why do I think I have to put on like a friend, a Parisian's, uh, you know, chapeau and get mm -hmm. um, a bunch of pastel paints out in order to consider myself a creative person? But the fear and sadness at led leads to like anger and leads to all sorts of bad behavior. Unlike you, my my only substance was pizza, but. Uh, it's going to come out in some it, it know, aberrant behavior it, or it, it pattern, is. and um, and so I I just knew I had to like find tools that I could go back to. So the fidelity of the morning pages, yeah, I say 10, 10 days I haven't done it. Maybe it's twenty days, but it's not more than that. Truly, not more than twenty days I haven't done it in all that time. Because if I go a day or two days, I found um, I'm just out of my rhythm. And it's hard, like shooting the show makes it really challenging because yeah. I have to get up so early. So if I can't do them first thing in the morning because I'm getting picked up at 5 a.m. to go to set, I will do them at 11 in the morning. Right. I'll bring my journal in my bag and I'll just do them there. And it's not, I've been doing it long enough that I can sink right into the mode. Right. Even if I've been working a little bit. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. 
It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. And what about the meditation component? Speaking of the protracted morning routine. I never miss it. Yeah. I, I, so TM is your, that's your vibe. When did you? Uh, seven, about seven years ago. Yeah. I, it was another one of those moments. It wasn't career based. One of my, uh, one of my kids had a health scare and it, they were fine. Luckily, they were fine. Perfect. But it was a health scare that lasted a few days. They were hospitalized for a few days and it looked like it could have been serious. And then it wasn't. But after that, the, uh, the sort of ricochet of, of that, the long tail of it, um, really fucked with me. And I became pretty anxiety ridden. And then my mom died and, uh, and a kind of anxiety that I couldn't fix the ways I normally fixed it in the past through, through um, like writing or through exercise. Like I would do those things and I would still feel and fear. Anxiety, yeah. And so, uh, and I'll just say, I, so I took Lexapro for six months because I feel no shame about, I think people, for, for me, I think people should use that stuff when it's necessary for the shortest window that, they need to get past an acute phase. And then as long as their pharmacologist tells them they should. But after about six months, I said to the shrink, I'd like to try, I'd like to get off of this. And I did, and I was fine. And the next time anxiety crept up, I decided to try a different mode. Yeah. And I went, uh, and luckily I got hooked up with Bob Roth who runs- Oh, cool. Uh, the, yeah, and I, you yeah know Bob. Bob's been on the podcast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got hooked up with Bobby and- um, he taught me to meditate. And so, and that was like, I say seven or eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd say on that one, it's even better than the morning pages. 
I mean, I never, ever miss a morning meditation. I do sometimes miss the afternoon meditation, but I feel shitty when I miss it. And yeah. I feel great when I do it. And it's, I mean, even just, if for no other reason than that's 40 minutes during the day, 20 in the morning, 20 in the afternoon, when I'm not online, when I'm not talking to anybody else, when I have to go inward, when I have to quiet my mind or let my mind race, but I can't do anything about it. I can't talk it out. I can't write it out. I have to just live in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I just find it insanely, incredibly valuable. It's interesting that you strike me as somebody who you make a decision to do something and then you do it. Like the fact that you've been so consistent in those two disciplines alone, I think. Oh, says it's a lot the opposite. I'll walk the fuck away from something that doesn't work <laughs> the quickest. Uh huh. If something sticks, it's because it's giving me great value. Like I will, I will, if, if I tried something, and it, I didn't get, I've tried a million things and didn't get value out of them or I didn't dig it. I just would walk away. I will say that's one of the other like lucky keys in my life. And part of that, do, this does have to do with like a bunch of privileged things, but like that I had, had, have always been relatively financially comfortable. Um, I do very little that I don't want to do. Yeah, but but very meditation and morning do. pages aren't exactly instant gratification disciplines. In terms of gauging, like, is this working or is it not? Well, but within a month of doing meditation, I felt the, because the, the part that bothered me about the anxiety wasn't just the thoughts. It was that I had a lot of physical manifestations. Of, you know how um, people have a lot of physical manifestations of anxiety, like your stomach can bother you, you have back yeah. pain, like all sorts of, I had a lot of physical stuff that just really very quickly, like went 40% away. And then by a month and a half into meditating, it went away like 80% or something like that, where all the, the way in which my heart would race, all the physical stuff just fucking went away. Okay, wow. So that was easy for me to want to continue. But I mean, you're talking about someone who could go to the gym for three months, four times a week, and then one day wake up and be like, nah, no. Yeah. I, so I've abandoned plenty of things. <laughs> yeah, because that does work. Yeah, no, I know, that works. <laughs> yeah. But I could just be like, I can't, it's cold. Uh -huh. Like, you know, it's cold outside and I just can't quite find my way there. So, right. uh, no, I don't, I'm not, I'll say, you know, our online personas and our personas on podcasts, I, I, don't, I haven't said this before, but it's really important to say, which is in real life, I really try hard to be the person I am on my podcast, but I'm not always. Yeah. I, so like, I don't want to present like, no, I don't follow through all the time on everything. Like I fuck off like everybody else does. Yeah. And I can get short tempered like everybody else does and all the rest of it. Uh, I aspire to be somebody who's constantly chasing this kind of unity and, and peace and contribution to the world. And I do it all the time, but um, I'm, I'm certainly nowhere near perfected or nowhere near actualized in the ways. You haven't graduated I, from the human condition no, yet? No, man, I really haven't. <laughs> no, I like, so fucking haven't. But that's, you know, of course I'm in the same boat with that. And, and it goes back to that permission piece. It's like giving people permission to express themselves and also to be innately human with their flaws and their weaknesses. Yes, but, but, but becoming really comfortable in our own skin that's what I've now sort of like turned my attention to mm -hmm. is how is acceptance? I agree with you, like accepting the human condition, but beyond that, finding a way to be comfortable enough with who we are that we can be really kind to everybody else. Yeah. 
that because the more you're comfortable with who you are, the fewer hangups you allow yourself to have, the, the more you can just present, not the Instagram version of you, but you, the easier it is to be empathetic to other people, the easier it is to show that, that empathy for other people, the easier it is to engage and find people where they are. And that's something that's really challenging. And I am constantly you know, in a battle to, to find, you find moments of grace, right? But most of life is hard. Right, but that's beautifully put. And I think that is, you know, that's, it's a laudable goal. Like, can you be the same person in every context? Like one of the mountains, you know, I've had to climb is just being a classic people pleaser where I would chameleon myself depending upon the scenario or the situation that I'm in. And it's been a journey of just getting comfortable enough with who I am that it's okay. And that the person I am presenting on the podcast, even though it's about the guests, you know, it's my show, um, is the same person who's going to talk to you if I bump into you on the street or whatever context. And the person who, you know, gets into a road rage incident or, you know, whatever happens, you know, in the course of a day. Seth Godin's a genius at it. He's, I don't know if you had Seth on the podcast. No, I, I, I tried to get him on once and then I was going to go up to his, I was in New York and I was going to have to go up to his house to do it. It's worth it, do it. it. So I, I do it. Maybe I'll make a point. It's worth it doing. Yeah, he's, I listened to the recent one that you just did with him. But he's exactly, the, so I, he's one of my mm -hmm. really close friends and he's exactly the guy. He's really like the Buddha in real life and it's amazing. Because yeah. I've seen him in many contexts and uh -huh. he, it's just who he is. All the time. Is he super dapper all the time? Yeah, he's put, yeah. you're not going <laughs> to see Seth not yeah. in a sort of like, they're just presents himself as you imagine that he would present himself. Uh, I want to say, it doesn't mean you want to be a person who's run over either, right? Because that's another default some people go to. Like you said, people please are where they want to be just only nice all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm talking about trying to find a way to understand who you are in a primal way, mm -hmm. be comfortable with that, and then work with that material too be as kind and good as you can within the context of living your life and going after what you want to go after. Yeah, and this is not the struggle of the artist. This is the struggle of, of, every, the human. of every human being. And I think it's fair to say that we're in an epidemic of people who are so disconnected from their highest self or the best version of who they could be yeah. um, because life's hard, man. And people are trying to just pay the bills and they look at that pursuit as a luxury that's not available to them. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So let's go back to the moment. You make this decision that you're gonna take a stab at this writing thing. So leading up to that was morning pages were played a part in that. And this friendship with David. Yeah. So how does this like sort of come together? Well, if I paint a full picture where I was, I guess Sammy was born when I had four months left of being 29 or something like that. Yeah. So I, I turned 30. I was playing a lot of poker then. My wife threw this poker, this party. And, and, and that's the other thing I'll say. Um, a podcast episode of mine that everybody gravitates towards is the one I did with my wife, Amy. And mm -hmm. it's she's an incredible novelist. And um, she really recognized this stuff in me before I did that I could do this. And it was really clearly leading me there. But um, she threw this poker party for me with all my closest friends. And my little uh, boy was there on my lap at four months old. And I had this certain kind of a hollow feeling in poker party because I'd really been playing a lot of poker. I would 
go, my, my job at the time, which was in the record business, was to go out and see bands. And in between seeing bands, I would go to this poker club. And then during the day, sometimes I would take phone calls at the poker club and have meetings at the poker club. And I was really into this life of playing cards. I loved a lot of stuff about it and played cards all through law school. And uh, like the character in, in the movie does. Um, but then there was this one moment where I was in my office during this time after that party because I did have the note, I did have the notion at the party. I didn't just feel this way, but I noted it and I mentioned it to Amy afterwards. And the reason I brought up Amy is to say, finding, surrounding yourself with people who want the best for you is also not just, is, it can be a talent, but it can also be something that you focus on. And it's crucial to focus on it, right? Yeah. Like. We're just coming out of the holidays. And one of the things I said online that got some, the biggest reaction of like anything I've ever said online was I I just, I, I said to people that if you're going home for the holidays, be really careful about telling your dreams yeah. to the people at dinner because they won't mean to crush your dreams, but often they'll say something that sounds different to you because of your relationship with them than you meant, than they meant but it can derail you. Yeah. And pretty sure I retweeted that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. protect, you know, protect yourself <laughs> yeah. in those situations, uh -huh. surround yourself with the right, surround yourself with the right mm -hmm. people. Um, and so I was surrounded by the right people and that made a gigantic difference uh, to me. But I was in, in my office one night, I had never been a cigarette smoker, I'd never smoked a cigarette in my life and I was smoking cigarettes. I'd smoked for about four months. And I hated cigarettes, was opposed to them. Got through college, high school, without like, millions of concerts, without ever smoking even one cigarette. And I'm, suddenly I'm a fucking cigarette smoker and I'm eating like a bacon cheeseburger. And I'm supposed to be listening to all these demo tapes. And I suddenly catch myself with the cigarette, the bacon cheeseburger, a big box of tapes I don't want to listen to. And I did have the crystallized thought then that uh -huh. this isn't the life I'm supposed to be living. And I can't, I can't be this miserable in the work environment. I have, I have this wife that I genuinely loved. And that was, I, I, um, and this kid that I genuinely loved. And then we had a second kid who I can't imagine loving anymore. And um, I went to Dave who was bartending and he had been trying to be a writer. He'd been writing and bartending. And I went to him and I said, and I have to give credit to Tony Robbins too. I had around that time I read Awaken the Giant Within. Uh -huh. And it had a, a huge impact on me because it allowed me to start doing some goal setting. So this is before The Artist's Way. And through doing Awaken the Giant Within, I realized it was one of those things like pay attention to how you're feeling, pay attention, notice what makes, notice the things that are working, notice mm -hmm. the things that aren't, don't be afraid to change. So I, was, I had done that stuff. Not the NLP part of it so much, but the sort of look at your life, look at the distance between where you wanna be and where you are. I had given that book to David. Then I, so I go to him this night and I say, dude, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I have to figure out how to write something. I can't, what do I do? And he gave me the artist's way. And um, I started doing the morning pages. And then soon thereafter, I walked into this poker club in New York called the Mayfair Club and called him and said, uh, I know what the movie is. And he said, I'll write it with you. We'll write it together. And, and so we... We decided, and then this is one of those things. I mean, David had this incredible work ethic and didn't have any of the ADHD issues and didn't have any of the sort of exact kind of insecurities that I did in that area. And 
And he said, well, we'll do it, but we have to meet every day and we mm -hmm. have to do this like it's a job. And so we worked, we met when he would get done bartending and before I would go to work, Amy cleared out, there was a storage space that every apartment in our building had one little tiny storage space, had a slop sink in it, room for one chair. And Dave and I went into that room every day, five days or six days a week from when we decided to start. We went for two hours, that was it, because mm -hmm. I had to go to work. So two hours in the morning, we wrote rounders in four and a half months. Wow, four and a half months. We researched it. I mean, I'm, the only part of the time that I'm collapsing is we had re we researched for a little while. So we would go out, go to the clubs, and then we would meet and outline it. But from the, from the moment we said, let's write the screenplay, let's start writing dialogue, four and a half months later, we had the script. Mm -hmm. And the next chapter of that isn't, oh, it's sold and got made right away. There's a whole saga that gets built into that. The movie ultimately gets made, but then it doesn't, it's not the sensation. Like we look at that movie now and it's beloved. You know, I just listened to the rewatchables yeah. episode with Bill and and it was so, it, it's just, it's revered. And one of the questions that they ask and kind of ponder in that conversation is like, why is this movie so rewatchable? Like trying to like deconstruct it. Um, and there's so many reasons for that, but the truth is it is incredibly rewatchable. It is beloved. It found its, you know, legs in DVD and you know these sort of technologies that came online, but it didn't happen in an instant for you. No, it was a failure at the box office, and it was it did okay critically. You know, it was a fresh tomato, but barely. But well, first it was rejected by every agency in town, and I I don't update my blog really, but I have a blog, and on there, uh -huh. Brian I tell the whole story of how it was rejected. Um, but it, all the agencies in town rejected it. It was an incredibly great lesson to me about gatekeepers and not not knowing anything. Yeah. I wrote down everything that they said. And then the day after it sold, literally like in a movie, the day after it sold, all the same agents who rejected it called to sign us. And <laughs> I said to all these agents, like- uh, Of course. I said the it's truth. Classic. I was young enough that I was just like, dude, you you said it was overwritten. You said it was underwritten. I don't know what those terms mean still. And then they would all say, no, it was my assistant. No, it was the reader. They All this bullshit. But I, I'll, Dave and I knew right then, well, you know, we have to be really careful about listening to what these people say from here on out because they clearly don't have any backbone and they don't uh -huh. believe the things that they say. So it it sells. We and This part is incredible. We get to be on set every day. We were part of making the movie. And then we're in that business. Then that's right. the life we're living. I, I do want to say one thing, which is I didn't quit my job. So often, and John Acuff has written about this beautifully, I think, in a couple of his books. You don't have to quit your job. You can find a half hour a day. And even if you think you can't find a half hour a day, you can. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not one of those people who says you don't need sleep. Like you definitely need to sleep, but you don't need the extra hour online. You don't need the time playing a video game. You don't need... The time at that you're the time that you're going to get in your car, drive to Starbucks, drive to wherever else. That's 20 minutes that you could sit and write something. And if writing is not your thing, that's 20 minutes you could be taking photographs, or that's 20 minutes that you could be working. There are yeah. 20 minutes in the day, and those 20 minutes add up. I I say to writers who ask me, it, I say if you write one page a day, one page a day of a screenplay, a screenplay is 100 pages. You can write three finished screenplays in a year at one page a day. A novel, you could finish a novel in a year, one page a day. So anyone can write one page a day. And you don't have to turn your whole life upside down because the catharsis, here's, and here's the problem with quitting. It's not just the pressure you put on yourself, which you do. It's you, can, you convince yourself you've actually taken action. 
but you haven't. Yeah. Right? Quitting, walking away is very dramatic and it might actually fill you with endorphins and you might feel like you did something and you can tell people you did something, but you didn't actually do anything. That's right. You just made it worse. And because human psychology is so strange, the fact that you, what you just talked about is an incredibly doable thing, right? And people don't wanna hear that. It's they so, don't hear that because that's scary because that means that they could actually do it. Yes. They like to say, well, I can't quit my job, so I can't be like you. And that's comfortable. And I think that keeps people stuck. Totally, completely, you're completely right. Um, I think Acoff's book, uh, the quit, I think Quitter is the one where he talks about this really well. Uh, where he he talks about the way in which you don't have to. I wish I would have had that book when I was young. That book and Steve Pressfield's book. I wish I would have had when I was starting out. You know, the War the of War Art. War of Art. It's the best. Those. Yeah, I wish I had that then because what I did. You know, what I learned to do essentially was keep the resistance at bay. Mm-hmm. And that's whatever your pursuit is. If you can just find a half hour where you don't judge yourself, because that's what you were talking about. You're exactly right, Rich. It's much easier to say I can't find the time than I'm scared I won't be any good. So instead. Don't worry about whether you're good or not. Just worry about, define success. This is a Tony Robbins thing, but I think it's great. It's like, you decide how you wanna, sorry, it's a Tony Robbins thing, and I think it's great, because I, am, I, Dave and I, executive produced, I'm, I'm Not Your Guru, that movie about Tony, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of all in on, on his work. But one of the great things he says is, is, is that you can define what a successful day is. So if I decide a successful day is, I'm gonna do morning pages, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna take a three mile walk. If I've completed those things, I've had a successful day. Yeah. And it's so empowering. If, it is empowering. And so if you sell yourself and then you mean it, if I spent 20 minutes chasing the, the, whatever X is, but because I, I know that like sort of the popular, um, there are many books and podcasts that have come out over the last bunch of years about how this idea of chasing your passion is foolish and fa- that, that there's no reason that, that giving that advice to young kids sets them mm-hmm. up for failure. But I think that's because we forget to say the other part of it, which is, well, but you have to work with incredible rigor to achieve it. Working with rigor to achieve something is never a waste of time Mm -hmm. because what you've learned at the end of that is how to work with rigor. And you can apply that to the next thing that you wanna do. The working with rigor part's real hard. That took me years to figure out how to do because not because I was lazy, but because I was scared. Scared of failing, scared of not being as smart as I thought I was, not being as good as I thought I was, scared of being rejected, scared of looking like a fool. And so, but what you find if you do the work every day, you don't actually care about that stuff anymore because, you know, in a hundred right. days, you'll have a hundred pages. Right. But process and rigor is not sexy. We don't talk enough about that because we want to talk about the life hack or what's behind that velvet rope or download this program and this is going to solve your problem. But but what that's true, but um, you're right. The thing that I, I fear most people who want to make a change don't know is that even for those of us who've made the change, it's still hard every day. Every day that you have to write or every day that you have to find a way to do your show or you have to stay on your diet, which I know is easy for, I mean, I've read all the stuff, I know why it's easy for you, but it's- it's Believe me, I have many challenges. Right, yeah. we, but that, that we still, we've just taught ourselves how to show up every day. We just have actually mm-hmm. put a practice in place We've put guardrails up for ourselves, but it, I could easily not write. I could easily fall into feeling, you know, way after the artist way, I had way after I started becoming a professional writer, I had huge career downswings. 
And it was terrifying to me. And it would have been so easy to, not just easy, like I could just see myself sliding into, well, this is over. Well, this was a good run. Well, but because I had a practice in place, I could revert to it and I could apply myself. The guardrails thing is huge. And I think making it super simple, almost binary is super important. So whether it's like, okay, two hours before work every day or morning pages are non-negotiable. Like when I changed my diet, it started with, all right, well, I'm just not gonna eat like meat and dairy. Like that's just off the table. Like it's 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 not even a sentence. It's It's easy to understand and easy to follow. And it's a rule, right? It's a guardrail. And I think the more guardrails you establish and set up, um, that brings structure to that process and a framework that makes it easier to execute on the process. Change feels it. cataclysmic, especially change that- And it's it, vague. In a way that, that you failed. Also, also, all of us have, right, it's totally vague. Also, all of us have, when you're on one side of the thing, it's easy to think that those who've succeeded at any of this stuff had something special. But that's special. And and look, Seth Godin and I went deep on, on this podcast because I bring up Bob Dylan a lot, who I do think is special. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan- he, he took issue with that. Yeah, well, we had a long talk about <laughs> yeah. it. But for me, uh, but, but I don't find it disempowering to think that Bob Dylan is- So yes, I believe there are, I'm an atheist, but you know, in the Jewish religion, there are 36 Lamed Vav, 36 holy people who walk the earth. They don't even know they are that, but they are that. But, but the way I would use that is, yeah, there are some people who have extraordinary natural gifts. I've had the opportunity to meet uh, Mark Shera, the great baseball player. Uh-huh. And, and I've heard him say, you know, when I was seven years old, I could just turn on a baseball and hit the leather off the ball. I was just born with this. But that's not most, that's not most extraordinarily successful no. people in and the it's arts not, it's or It's not Michael Phelps either. Right. You know, that guy had to show up for five hours a day, every single day so, for 12 years. So yeah, you might not be able to be Bob Dylan. I might never be able to be David Mamet, but I can be, uh, it doesn't matter. I can still find a way if I show up every day to get the best out of my own point of view of the world, out of my own um, facility with language and telling stories and pictures. And so, but, but I fail all the time. And that's part of what I always wanna be able to communicate with people, to people is, um, the most successful people, most of the most successful people that you look at, and I'm not including myself in that category of most successful people, but most people doing the thing that you wish you were doing are having hard days doing it all the time. They've just trained themselves to do it. Yeah, back to the permission. Yeah, give yourself permission to do this work. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I was at an event a couple weeks ago um, at Largo in LA, and it was a live event with Rob Bell. Do you know who Rob Bell is? The like a, keto guy? No, no, or, no. Oh. He's like a, a former mega church pastor. Oh, no, I don't know who he is. He's now become sort of a heretic in the Christian community, but is an incredible public speaker and like a really beautiful guy. But he was doing this live event with Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, and, and somehow it came up, I don't know whether he asked her or somebody in the audience asked her, like, how do you describe what you do or what is it that's, what is your mission or what's important about what you do? And she said, I'm the person that gives people permission. And then she asked somebody from the crowd to get up and say, what do you need permission to do? <laughs> and volunteer, she's like, I give you permission to do that. And it's so freeing from somebody of that, well, you know, I, who's I, successful in that regard, whether it's you or her or somebody like that to say, it's okay. I talked about that a lot when I was doing the Vine series that I did, where I was yeah. really talking about that you don't have to have, nobody has to give you permission to do the work that you want to do. And in this, you know, our friend James Altucher would say, all these gatekeepers have now gone away. You're in an industry where there's still gatekeepers, just by the nature of how that industry works. But in so many industries, those gatekeepers are no longer either there or important. And so with that being removed, that excuse is no longer valid. And again, it goes back to that's, that's, that's frightening for a lot of people or it's empowering depending upon your perspective. Well, yeah, it's scary because then you only have, a, a way it's scary is if you then frame it that you only have yourself to blame. But, right. And if you think, well, this is my one shot and if I fail now, it means I'm worthless. And, and, and one of the, you know, often it's because there was someone when we were young who told us something about ourselves that we unfortunately believed. And that by doing and failing, we're going to reaffirm that bad judgment. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do, now you're I think, my language. is try to figure <laughs> out what that is and who that was uh -huh. and how to just silence that voice. Yeah. It's beautiful to hear you say that because when I watch Billions, which I love, goes without Thank saying, you. I mean, Oh, it's, feel free it's to say so, it. It's so well-crafted and there's such a precision to it that it's easy to look at that and say, well, whoever's behind this, man, these guys are like next level. I can't even wrap my head around what it would take to construct that universe in that way. Well, what we are is working professionals. And look, I'm also not gonna poor mouth it, right? Dave and I have worked really hard for a really yeah. long time to become really good at doing what we do. And you're I, in the middle of production right now, still, right? Yeah, I'm the writing. Season is about I, was, to I was writing. Premiere. Yeah, I was. I left uh, this couch that I like to write on to come here. Um, yeah, we've shot. We're shooting in the middle of shooting episode eight of twelve of season uh -huh. four, and the trailer just came out. And you can find it if you go to my Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You'll you'll see a link to the trailer. Uh, but we we're good at what we do because we've like we've worked incredibly hard at it, but we've also tried to like 
be really careful about continuing to grow, continuing to learn best practices, continuing to ask questions of great filmmakers. So we'll show our work to people who we feel like are further along. We'll ask them questions about it. We will grind and grind and grind to make the thing appear effortless and great mm-hmm. and like it just swings. You know, we're, we're, we're lifelong obsessive, obsessives about this. And, you know, I, I also, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like I just one day decided, oh, I should be, I should create things. I should tell stories. It should be movies. Like I had memorized when I would, was at college and I would go see a movie like She's Gotta Have It by Spike Lee or Raising Arizona by the Coen Brothers. I would go see those movies three, four, five times in a row. I'd memorize the movies before you would just easily have it on VHS. And by then you could also, they would come out six months later and I would just watch them over and over and I would memorize them and I would really think about the language and I would adopt that language for myself. And so like in 94, when Pulp Fiction came out, Amy and I went to that the night it came out and something exploded in my brain. Here was a guy who was clearly doing everything that I, somewhere deep inside me, secretly wanted to do. So right, 93 was The Counting Crows. Then 94, I saw... Pulp Fiction, that was another one of those things where it was like, well, you could do anything. Like you could make that rectangle on the screen happen mm-hmm. in the middle of, of you know, when Uma so draws the little rectangle, you could break all those rules. And uh, something else kind of like fired in my brain that made me become aware of it. And Dave and I have continued. One of the great lessons I took from that Counting Crows thing, a guy, a very successful guy, very, very successful guy wrote me yesterday on Twitter. And he said, hey, I have a question for you. Do you get angry and jealous when someone else succeeds? Yeah. When you see someone got a show. And I said, no, dude, no. Like, I'd be a lunatic if I felt that way now in I was thinking life. that when you were describing Pulp Fiction. I was wondering whether it made you angry. Well, that was before I'd ever written anything. So all, everything then made me feel, no, it just made me, it all just made me feel like a failure. Uh-huh. Not angry. But no, the, the, when Dave and I wrote Rounders, early on in it, when I realized we might have a chance at this, I, in it, I, I, promised myself that I would never allow the way I felt in the movies and TV to be like the way I felt when I was an executive in the music business, Uh that I would never harden myself to like the beauty of the art. And that I would go in to watch movies and watch TV shows like a fan. The second or third time I watch something, I'm watching it like a professional. But the first time I watch something, I'm just watching it and I'm just letting myself get float away on it. And so I still get so turned on when I see something great. That's cool. So as long as you've been in this business and with all the success that you've had, you still avoided becoming sort of hardened and bitter. Yeah. If you look on my Twitter, you'll see a lot of negative comments from me about one thing and one thing only, and that's the president of the United States. <laughs> There's and, a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and those <laughs> associated with him, but I'll never slam a movie ever, uh-huh. ever. I know how hard it is to make them yeah. or a TV show. It's too hard. Yeah, everyone goes into it with the best intentions. Everyone's trying to, to do something, something great. great. It's the, a miracle that anything gets made. Uh, yeah, it takes it takes um, it takes a it does take a lot of luck. And I would also say, when I mentioned privilege earlier, and I try to say this all the time, and I think it's important to say it. When I looking back at fifty two, to be like a white male in America at that time who didn't have college debt. If I didn't find a way to be successful, it was just entirely my fault. The world was set up for guys like me. It was just it was just laying there for people like me because uh, nobody knew about subliminal biases in that way. So executives weren't checking themselves on that. So someone like Dave and I walk into a room, we could talk sports with the guys in charge. Yeah. It was almost always guys in charge. There was a lingua franca that we shared that 
made things much easier for me. There was also this idea in the culture that if you were a guy, you could sort of out dream big and take your shot Mm -hmm. in a way that I think women and people of color felt it was much harder. Um, And I didn't have college debt because my father was rich enough to pay for college. Mm -hmm. So I had certain structural advantages that it's important to say. So you might not be able to spend two hours a day, but so find 20 minutes at first. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other thing that happens is you gain momentum. Suddenly 20 minutes does become an hour because suddenly that's the part of the day you look forward to the most. That's the part of the day where you feel the most alive. I like how you just got really excited right there. Well, that's what happened to me. (laughs) So what do you think is, what makes a great story? What are the elements of great storytelling? Uh, I think it's that the storyteller is incredibly engaged to share that story with you. Is dying. I I don't think until I I truly don't think intellectually about storytelling. I don't think in terms of acts. Like I don't think in terms of inciting events. I never have. What I think about is, do I have an incredible curiosity about this story? Is there a world that's incredibly fascinating to me? and to David, because we tell each other the stories, mm-hmm. right? Is there a world that's incredibly fascinating to me? Are there characters who I find incredibly compelling? Is there a language I start to hear? Because the lang- um, language has always been a real key thing for me. Is there a language that I, I can sort of hear in this, in this universe? And then it's just not faking the funk. It's, it's not, I, I'll say I'm much more of an instinctive writer than I am an intellectual writer. And so, I, I can tell if something's boring. I can tell if something feels inauthentic or not real to the environment or the world. But I'm really bad at prescriptive sort of instruction mm-hmm. to people. I don't, I, you know, if I read your script, I can tell you that you have to move this story up close. I can, if I read your script, I could take it apart like a professional, but in the abs, and I'm, by the way, I will not read your script, but in the, to generally don't people, send, but in don't the- send him. Don't send no, Brian your script and uh, yeah, don't okay. ask him if Rounders 2 is gonna happen. I mean, I've, you ask me for Rounders 2, I just find <laughs> yeah. it funny. I'll make fun of you online yeah. in a very friendly, loving sort of a way. But yeah, don't send me your script. But I could do that, but I don't, um, like really all the things that we've done, if you think about Billions, it's completely unconventional. These yeah. these two sort of leads, then this third lead in the Wendy character, and then really Taylor, who's also a lead, and the way we jumble their stories together. And no clear-cut bad guy. We never talk guy. about A, B, and C stories, really. I mean, once in a while, we'll throw those words around, but we're we're really trying to just make each moment completely compelling and that the characters act in ways that are both true and surprising. But there still has to be this balance between left brain and right brain, because part of this is a math equation. Like, how do you make all of these storylines fit together, this puzzle that you have to construct in order to like but tell the story that, that comes back, well, that comes back to rigor, for me anyway. That comes back to not, when I say don't fake the funk, not lying to yourself. Because if you've listened to stories and told stories for your whole life, you know when a story works. So I don't actually apply the math in the way that one might think that I do. I'm aware of it, of course, because but I'm aware of it in the way that a musician is aware of the rhythm of the two four mm-hmm. in a rock song, right? You, it, they just start, when a musician starts writing a riff, they kind of know what a riff feels like, what a riff sounds like, what the groove, how the groove locks in. So yes, music, musicians have 
a sort of innate understanding of math in the same way that screenwriters do. Yeah. But I don't think in terms of, when I meet people who say they're great at story math, I'm like, I don't understand that. I just like telling stories. Yeah. I don't really, I can't give you the answer that. Is there like a, like a channel? Like when you're writing like dialogue, for example, like are you just getting into, you know, some kind of flow state mindset where it just comes to you from some other place? Writing dialogue for me is the most fun part, and it's the part that is the least conscious. It is, you know these characters, you are, I know these characters and the situation. Oh, okay, I can give you one math answer. The one math answer I can give you is conflict. So there has to be conflict all the time. I would say uh, a scene works dramatically when someone wants something and there's an obstacle. That can be an internal obstacle or an external obstacle. So as long as the dialogue is is um, engaged in solving a conflict, uh-huh. in getting someone over an obstacle, then you've solved the kind of story requirement. And then that then it, the dialogue really comes from a. Uh, um, I don't want to undersell. I was a kid who would for fun. Remember the thing I said about boring books? They were like radioactive. But the things I liked, I would read. I read four books a week. But they were just the books I liked. Uh-huh. I would read word books all the time. I loved language. I always just wanted to learn vocabulary words. Not for tests. I didn't study for the SATs. I just liked reading arcane books about like language and sentences. And I would memorize movies. And so when I would memorize movies and I could quote back the dialogue to you, something became innate. It's cellular for me, the yeah. rhythm of that kind of speech. And the only thing I ever did sort of consciously is sometimes I will read David Mamet. Like when I was younger, especially, mm-hmm. I would just read David Mamet for, to understand the restraint and rhythm of his early work. Yeah. Are you able to tune out all the external kind of um, ephemera that, that is swirling around billions? I mean, you know, it's so successful. Last season was like riveting. You're going into this new season how are you able to like tune the noise out and just focus on like trying to do the best storytelling that you can without being influenced by, you know, this, this gigantic enterprise that is the show now and all the people that love it. I mean, David, I'm glad that we're this age, not younger, because I, none of that, it, I like it all I, uh-huh. and I'm fine. But with you're it. very engaged with the fans. Yeah. Like you're, you're like a fan yourself, the way that you kind of, you know, interact with people online well, that, in you that like, conver- those conversations. What's the line in Silverado that Kevin Klein says, I decided you either, you either have to trust everybody or trust nobody. It uh-huh. doesn't make a difference. So yeah, I, I, the choice is either to be fully engaged or not engaged with that, with the sort of, with fans and, and talking online. I'd rather be in the middle of it We've already made the show. I'll say there's never been a moment that I'm writing it, that Dave and I are on set shooting it or editing it, that I'm thinking about a comment anybody made anywhere, a critic or a, a fan. The world of the show is is its own world. And part of being a working professional is being able to engage in that way and then shut that off and mm-hmm. engage in the work. I mean, the thing lives in our imaginations, the two of us. It's, it's just um, these characters are, could no sooner be sort of influenced by what somebody says in that way than a a character that lives in a book you read 40 years ago. They're their own thing and their world is its own world. And it seems like the the question that you're trying to explore with the show and what's kind of central to Mm -hmm. it, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is 
this idea of why is it that we can get on board with these characters who are behaving badly and doing abhorrent things, people whose values seem misplaced, who are interested in power and greed, who are very witty and charming, uh, but are not necessarily <laughs> behaving you know, in their best self, so to speak, um, and not just be on board with them, but be cheering for them. Like, what does that say about us as humans? What does that say about America? And what does it say about this moment that we're in right now? I mean, what do you think it says? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm asking you, I know you're not gonna answer this question, but just in the asking, you know, it's making I love that us you're think asking about, the it's, question. It's making us think about it. Completely this. intentional that you ask the question. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, what I'll say about that is, David and I, we definitely made the decision not to have it in a very conscious way. We were not interested in having a traditional hero on the show. Mm -hmm. We did not want a good guy and a bad guy. What we wanted was gray everywhere. We wanted to examine why tremendous verbal gifts, a certain kind of charisma, power and money started to stand in for real qualities of character in our culture. We wanted to examine why wealth became not just something to go after, uh, not a way to take care of yourself and your family, not a way to get your dreams, but an end in itself. Why we are in a country where people use prosecutorial positions to advance their own careers. Uh, we looked around and saw this, so who was popular in the culture and why? Meaning why were, I'm friends with Mark Cuban and I've known him a long time. I, we looked at why were Mark Cuban and Donald Trump, this is, we would, we're saying this in interviews before Trump had even announced he was gonna run. And I even then took pains to say, I don't consider Mark and Trump in any way similar, other than they were both, uh, one is actually was a successful businessman, that's Mark, and then the other was held out to be so. And they were, the most two most popular reality stars in the, in the in the country and so we asked ourselves why and that was a backdrop to telling this story we also both live david lives in connecticut i live in manhattan and we were around the hedge fund world and we were here to see what happened to guys like elliot spitzer on the other side of it chris christie people who were supposed to be prosecutors who used those positions to advance themselves to become famous to become powerful and something about it struck us as incredibly compelling because these people weren't reviled in the culture. They were celebrated. We were interested in how far people would go with characters like that. And we were determined not to make either one heroic. You know, the first half of the first season, people find themselves rooting for Axe and they don't understand it. And then as Axe does these wor does worse and worse things, they somehow stay with him. Yeah. And the same thing for Chuck and throughout season two and Wendy and, and Taylor. And so, yes, the show wants to ask these questions without giving a direct answer to them. And, and, our, I, and I think it's important to say if someone doesn't mm -hmm. watch the show, the show's super funny and entertaining. Yeah. And that's really like, yeah, yeah, the yeah. main thing is that yeah. people really have a great time watching it. If there's a message underneath it, you can take it or not. Uh huh. Well, truth is stranger than fiction as well, because the question that you're exploring in the show is being writ large in real life at the moment on a level that if you had scripted that, 
10 years ago, people would have said was too extreme and unbelievable. I agree. <laughs> so. <laughs> 100 percent it is amazing how you can vacillate between rooting for axe rooting for chuck and with the trailer that you just released you said you're gonna have to choose and you know throwing kate into it as well asia kate dylan um as taylor like you're gonna have to choose and i'm like i don't know if i want to choose yeah you can love all of them you can i (laughs) sure i do i'll say dave and i love all of them yeah we love all these characters. I mean, that's the thing, right? You can't you you can't write them if you can't understand them. Uh-huh. So I know how they, I, I do understand yeah. what they think of themselves. I do understand I, how they see themselves in the world. My moment with that that I recollect. I mean, it's been a while since I watched last season. Um, but the one that's the moment that stands out for me, and I can't remember it completely specifically, but Axe and this other hedge fund guy. I think they were out on a balcony. The other guy was on some hard times. And Axe asked him, well, how much money do you have? Or like, how much do you need? And I can't remember the figure. It was some ungodly amount of millions. And they kind of say, well, you know, that's not gonna be enough when he explains all of his expenses. So that a guy said that, that rap, which was in the third episode last year, a guy said that whole rap to us. It was in real, a real, a real real guy guy at dinner. Walked like? us through why fifty million dollars wasn't enough money. <laughs> yeah, in real life, and, and, it's and so he walked us through the reason why. And he really said he that thing to us about the wife. Thirty million. He really said the thing to us about the 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 wife is going to you know you have to give two million to charity so she can be on the charity boards and you got to have the house out in the Hampton. I mean, he yeah. said that whole run to us, and then we said to him, "We're putting that in the show." And uh-huh. he said, "Yeah, please put it in the show." Yeah, and after hearing it and thinking about it for a minute, you're like. He's right. He can't live. Uh, he can't do it. He needs well, more. Well, that's that rap. And then also and then at I'm the beginning like, of the season, Lara job. and Axe say 300 million isn't <laughs> yeah. enough. But yeah, I mean, watching the uh-huh. show, I mean, we hope that people are going to turn off while they're watching it. Maybe you understand the logic of their thinking. But I do hope that it, that um, afterwards you will- Of course. Think to, you know, you will f- allow yourself to mm-hmm. think about- what do you really need? Yeah, and and why and and what all what that stuff really means? Yeah, yeah. Because the fact that I could hear that speech, that exchange, and go, oh yeah, I can see why he can't live on fifty million dollars, and then take a beat and connect with how preposterous that is, I think is is a really poignant um, reflection on kind of where we are culturally. But in the same way that that uh, you know Gordon Gecko spawned ungodly thousands of traders and investment bankers, is this? Do you have a sense that this show is having that impact on the hedge fund industry? They all watch the show. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, well, I know those guys show. that are already in there, but like kids yeah. in their college dorm who are now going to go into the hedge fund world. Uh, well, we'll see. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I certainly saw the effect that Rounders had on people wanting to play poker, and how many people that brought into the game of poker. Uh-huh. Poker pros to this day will thank us. And Dave and I can't buy yeah. a meal around them because they made so much money off of the, what they call the rounders fish who got into it. So uh-huh. I do think, you know, popular culture do, things can can affect people in that way. But that's not, I have no idea whether that's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. That's not true, it's probably gonna happen. Right. Well, and beyond that, uh, the significance of Asia Kate Dillon um, playing Taylor and and having a transgendered person 
That is uh, having a gigantic impact, and we're massive. thrilled about that. That's that. It's was been really cool, awesome to see people react, and the letters Asia gets, the letters we get. They're remarkable, remarkable actor, and the fact that we were lucky enough to cast a gender non-binary actor to play this gender non-binary character was a great stroke of fortune. Uh, it's a privilege to work with Asia, and the effect that Asia has had is. That's something, man, am I proud of being a part of that. And I, I will say, I didn't know that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You never know if something is going to catch on. And that's what I, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad that there isn't math. So if we talk about how that character came to be, each of my children came home. Sam was at college and Anna was in high school. And within a very short time, they each came home and told me a story about having to say gender pronouns. So they're both cisgendered people, but they told stories of Anna said that every her school was on a, a more frequent than even semester program. They had these intervals. And every eight weeks or so, a teach, they would start a new one. And the teacher would say, has anyone had a shift in gender? And, and I said, so what does that mean? And, and I said, well, you say, um, you announce your pronouns. My pronouns are, I thought, well, that's, what do you mean? As a, as a grown man, right. I couldn't even understand it, right? At first time you hear it, it sounds nuts. So then Sammy came back from college and he said, I went to this homeless shelter to um, report a story and it's a homeless shelter for teens and they come and they announce their pronouns. Now I just heard that twice. I went to the writer's room and another writer had had similar experience and we started talking about it and just came up with this notion of, well, there should be this gender non-binary who shows up at Axe Capital and then started creating this character who could be a blank slate who we could think these things about who Axe could see. We thought it would be fascinating if Axe saw himself in someone who from the outer appearances was so different from Axe, but they met in this special place of their intellect. But none of that was like calculated. It was like the opposite of calculated. It was like a fun thing I heard, a fascinating way the world was changing. I, I, I thought the stories were really moving when I started reading about it. Then we interviewed gender non-binary people because that's part of how you do your job. You you want to represent people properly. So we had a few gender non-binary people come to the writer's room and we interviewed them. We spoke to them about it, asked about their lives, showed them dialogue, talked through it, and then we're able to build this character. And then the magic happens. Asia yeah. Kate Dillon comes walking into the audition. And suddenly the thing just Did takes just on a life of it? its own. Were you immediately? The Asia came and read three times and um, each time the character in Asia started fusing more. It was, but it was pretty clear. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you have a sense that they would become as important to the story arc as they ultimately became? Because yeah, right away. You oh, you did. Oh, right away. Yeah. Well, we'd hope the character of Taylor would do that, but also we were smart enough. This is where the, the sort of, so you're making the art just to making the art. But I mean, after three episodes, we called Showtime and we should, we said, you have to make this person a regular cast member of the show. Mm-hmm. You have to sign this person up. And we told Asia, you should, we invited Asia to be a regular on the series because it was clear yeah. before anyone ever saw it. Three episodes in, it was like, well, that's, that person has to be right in the cast like everybody else. Right. What's the movie you haven't made yet that you still want to make? What's the story beyond Billions? Well, there are two scripts that Dave and I have written that have come very close to getting made that ought to get made. One is called Beat the Reaper, based on a book by Josh Bazell, and the other is The Winter of Frankie Machine, based on a book by Don Winslow. Beyond that, I can't say. You can't? Nah. Because you don't know or because you don't want to say? Both. <laughs> Both. 
I mean, you can't talk it out, right? Right. And, and also, sort of, what's the? I mean, yeah, I'm not going to say. Yeah. Are you going to tell us anything about what's going to happen in billions? I mean, the trailer. You know, we have great new people on the show this year. Awesome new characters. And Malkovich is back. John Malkovich is uh, in the show, which is just awesome for us. You know that that that's one of those things where you're doing this long enough. You know, we made two movies together at the beginning of our career. Stayed friends, not super close to each other all the time, but really all, all never not in touch. And so I sent John a text last year, and I said, "Would you come? We have this idea. So Russian oligarch, you come do three episodes." And um, he just immediately wrote back, I'd love to. And then he kept good to that. his word and did it. That's cool. It was awesome. Um, well, let's wrap this up. But I want to um, leave people with, we, we covered it, I think, pretty comprehensively. But for people that are listening to this who, who do feel creatively stuck, who feel like they uh, you know, have this voice that they can't bring expression to, um, beyond giving permission and creating those guardrails, what's some kind of final parting? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Well, first of all, I'd say this, go easy on yourself. Don't add to that self-hatred. Don't add to that yelling at yourself that you're disappointing yourself or whoever. So take a breath and understand that it's okay that everybody who's ever done this has felt what you're feeling. And then find a small action that you can do consistently. Do something. Do some little thing every day. I know every day sounds like a lot, but do it every day. Do something every day. Do morning pages. Take a walk where you're not going to listen to a podcast or you're not going to listen to a book. Find a way to be alone with yourself and hear your voice and nurture that voice in the way that you secretly know how. And, uh, and just do it consistently. And know that you do have 20 minutes. 20 minutes you can, let's say you say, I can't write a page. Okay, write a half a page a day. You'll have written 150 pages in a year. And a year is a really short time. And if you have an iPhone and you think you don't have enough time, go to that little thing that tells you how much screen time you've, (laughs) how much time you've spent using your phone over the last week. And I guarantee you, there's opportunity to free up. I reward myself when I'm writing. Uh, if I finish a scene, I'll go on Twitter for 20 minutes. Then I'll go back and finish the next scene. And I'm you're writing. able to cut it off at 20 minutes? Yeah. 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 I, well, like, when I get the feeling, like, again, like I said, you know, I'll be writing a scene. I'll get to where I think the scene's right. A little dopamine reward. Uh-huh. And dopamine reward and then back to work. Exactly <laughs> right. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Um, it, I really appreciate the work that you and, do. It, and you, you are like, you, you are kind of like this self-help guru. I mean, the advice that you dispense on these matters is no small thing. I think this is something that, that we all struggle with. Um, and uh, just, I'm so happy to share it because I've took such advantage of it being shared by people before me. So, and the podcast I do is the only thing I want to direct people mm-hmm. to at the moment with Brian Copeland because I ask these questions to all these people. Yeah. It's a great, it goes well with your podcast. Yeah. No, it's, it dovetails perfectly and you have fantastic guests. I've enjoyed the podcast for a really long time. I don't know how you find the time to do it while Dude, running the show. Yeah, I don't either. But uh, keep doing it if you can. Man. Thanks, man. All Thank right, you for peace. having me here, Rich. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Oh, wait. Peace. And, and I want to I wanna thank um, 
my my niece's boyfriend, uh, I'd like to say fiance, but it's not true at this moment. My niece's boyfriend, Noah, who introduced Pressure. me to Rich Roll yeah. and is in the room right now. But He's he introduced right me here. to Rich and said, oh, you got to listen to this guy. He talks about stuff that you do and you'll love him. And that's uh-huh. what got me uh, interested. And you had asked me to be on the show. It was perfect timing because you'd asked me yeah. to be on the show when Noah hit right when Noah was telling me to oh, listen. Oh, cool. So it was great. The synchronicity of the Thanks, universe. Man. I love it. Peace. Blats. That was awesome. That was great. I dig that guy. I dig his work. I dig his message. Everything about that was just amazing. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Do me a favor. Let Brian know what you thought of today's conversation. The guy is a beast on Twitter. Hit him up at Brian Koppelman, K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N. And again, season four of Billions returns to Showtime on March 17th. So check that out. If you're struggling with your diet, if you're really desiring of mastering your plate, but feel like you don't have the skill in the kitchen or the time to devote to it, or the culinary acumen you believe you require, I cannot stress enough how much I know our Plant Power Meal Planner can help you guys. It truly is an amazing product. We work very hard to create, to essentially solve a very basic problem, making nutritious eating delicious and convenient. When you sign up at meals.richroll.com, you will get access to thousands of delicious and easy to prepare plant-based recipes thoroughly customized based on your personal preferences with unlimited grocery lists and grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas, as well as a team of crack expert nutrition coaches at the ready to guide you seven days a week. You get all of this for just $1.90 a week, literally a cup of coffee. So for more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on meal planner on the top menu on my website. If you would like to support our work here at the RRP. There are a couple of ways to do just that. Just tell your friends about the show or your favorite episode. Take a screen grab, share it on social media, tag me so I can reshare it. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, all those good places. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, very helpful. And you can support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Thank you to everybody who has done that. Appreciate everybody who helped put on the show today. I do not do this alone. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. In general, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video and editing services. We did not video this episode because I did it on the road, but they're the wizards behind the YouTube page. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics, David Kahn for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a few days with the iconoclastic pastor and New York Times bestselling author and live wire, Nadia Bowles-Weber. This one is a treat. You're not going to want to miss it. So until then, go out, create something. Peace. Plants, namaste.